Welcome to the Valve Chronicles by Clay Valve, your trusted partner since 1936 for the world's highest quality automatic control valves. Join us as we share insights and discuss products that are often invisible, but always essential. Hello and welcome to the Valve Chronicles, a podcast from Clay Val. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the show. Now, this is the third episode in a series that looks at the differences in aircraft fueling operations between the United States and Europe. And today we're taking a look at pressure control and a couple of other key differences uh, on both sides of the pond. And joining me once again are our two subject matter experts. First, we have Tom Boriak, Global Market Manager for Fueling at Clay Val. Tom, great to have you back on. How are you doing? I'm doing outstanding, Tyler. Thank you. Absolutely. Well, happy to have you back on the show. And we're also welcoming back Richard Hooten, Market Manager for Aviation and Ground Fueling EMEA at Clayval Europe. Richard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Tyler. Nice to be back. Well, it is uh, great to have both of you back on the podcast as we continue this series looking at uh, some of the differences in fueling operations between the United States and Europe. And last time we took a look at cultural differences and how that manifested itself in practice. And today we're looking more specifically at a couple of other differences. And, and Tom, we wanted to start off talking about pressure control. Talk to us about pressure control and how those uh, how, how things differ between the United States and Europe. Yeah, you know, there's talking about some of the differences and it's really today we'll focus on some of the operational differences that we see. Um, the biggest one being we operate to different standards or specifications. So in, in the U.S., um, ATA or A4A, Airlines for America, specification 103 kind of drives what our operators do, both at fuel facilities and into plane operations. And we'll focus a little bit more on into plane operations in our discussion today. And then over in Europe and actually quite broadly around the world, uh, JIG 1, uh, issue 12 is being used for similar guidelines. Different countries around the world may have a standard they use as well. Canada has a CSA that they use, but they also do th some things to JIG as well. So there's, there is definitely a variance there. Uh, over the last several years, uh, there has been some work to go towards some global harmonization on these standards. Uh, we're not there. There's still a lot of work to be done. Uh, some different issues have kind of popped up that we've been working on and through, you know, a big one. And I, I don't want to jump into it today. There's a lot of discussions going on around the world uh, with these different groups uh, and with operators, but that's filtration. Where are we going from filtration? Where have we come? Where are we going? And what does that look like under these two different standards? Big discussion. We're not the experts <laughs> on filtration, so I don't want to get into that one. But we do have some operational differences, pressure control. It's one of the biggest issues I'm hearing about right now uh, from both sides um, of the pond or from around the world, however you want to look at it. And these are requirements that in and of themselves, they are safe. Both sides are doing it safely if they've done it right, but we do it differently. How we tell people uh, how to do it is different. Um, unfortunately, you know, it's going to sound like I'm, I'm giving my buddy Richard over there all the credit in the world for the way they do it, but they do do it, uh, in a very nice manner in how they give guidance to the operators. So if we take a look at, uh, A4A spec 103, uh, it is written, put together, voted on some of the different, uh, the languages in it by a technical committee within A4A that's guided by the airlines. JIG is put together by a group of stakeholders. It could be airlines, it could be 
uh, oil companies. It could be end of plane operators or uh, facility managers. And those same guys also sit on technical committees for like the Energy Institute, which will guide some standards we'll talk about a little bit further into this podcast. They're set up different ways. And in A4A specifically, um, we're going to talk about pressure control. Operators have to do quarterly pressure control. This isn't done while you're fueling on an aircraft. The the fueling equipment has to go to a fuel facility um, or a test stand to be checked. And it has a primary and a secondary pressure control. In A4A, they say you have to have a primary and secondary and you can't exceed 50 PSI. I think the exact language is pressure control devices shall limit fueling pressure at the fuel nozzle to 50 PSIG or less under conditions of constant flow. We can get into constant flow, low flow rate, static flow for different pressures. And and we'll talk a little bit about that, but this is really what A4A says. So it leaves it a little bit more open-ended for the operators. It gives you some ideas of ways to control your pressure, but they don't tell you how to test it. They don't give you pressures to a primary or secondary device. It's just a one, just don't exceed this pressure. So however you get there, get there, that's fine. And JIG actually gives you very specific language. The hose-in pressure controller is going to be 45 PSI, and we'll get into kind of how they test that in just a few minutes. The inline pressure control device, which can be an inline valve or a coupler, is going to be set at this pressure. So there's our really big uh, variance in pressure controls. The, the second part of that is, okay, so they both have to be tested quarterly. Well, there's no real guidance on how to test in the U.S. I've used this example several times with some people from within the industry is, in the U.S., you can go to 25 different airports and ask them to perform a pressure control test for you on a piece of equipment. And you're going to see it 25 different ways. Now, if you were to say how JIG outlines it is the correct way to do it, 24 of those ways in the U.S. would not be correct. And that last one may be correct, maybe not. (laughs) Um, So there's just no standard on how to test. And so it's a big education piece. It's something I've personally been working on with a lot of the U.S. operators to to teach, to educate. Um, we've written to the technical committees to explain, you know, adding some of this language for better performance. And we've, we've pushed that and, and we're, we're trying to educate as much as possible because we think that's, that, again, we think that's important. We think that's how this industry continues to grow and continues to be safer. And, and we're not the only ones doing it. Uh, I'll give props to him. I've known him for a lot of times. He, he works for the uh, competitor, but we actually used to work together. But Bill Moody also does the same thing. And we're both uh, him and I are educating to really test the way the jig standards call out. So it's it's definitely a big variance. You know, jig is is very cool because they say, okay, you have to do your quarterly pressure checks. And then you go back into their appendix and they've probably got four or five pages of how to perform this test. What's your primary? What's your secondary? What is it under uh, constant flow? What is it at low flow rates or what can the range be? What is it at static pressure? Is there creep for seal integrity? So they're dialing in all of this information. Now, with that said, Richard, I don't think y'all do it absolutely correct. And I think this is where one of those things we can learn from each other. The part I think that maybe 
the international community can learn from is we don't have to tell everybody how to do everything down to the to the nth degree. And, and I hope that's not taken wrong, but we shouldn't tell operators what their primary is and what their secondary is necessarily. They should be able to say, hey, we know we have to have an independent primary and secondary pressure control that can be tested independently. And these are the pressures that we are looking for as a primary or secondary. It shouldn't have to be that the hose end is the primary. Um, what we could actually see is they could get higher flow rates possibly by putting their hose in pressure controller as their secondary uh, versus their primary control because it's going to have a higher setting. Uh, people from the industry know that the hose and pressure controller is not really as much a pressure control device as a shutoff device. And why I call it a shutoff device is if a hose and pressure controller is rated for 45 PSI, it's going to be closed at 45 PSI. And there's a spring in there. Uh, and with back pressure from the aircraft, it's it's compressing that spring. So as you get closer to that 45 PSI, that piston that's compressing that spring is actually closing down and you're reducing flow rate. So you're if you get to 30 PSI, you're at a mostly closed piston position, which is really reducing the, the flow rate. Whereas if your hose and pressure controller was the secondary and it was 50 PSI, well, all of a sudden you've got five extra PSI of play in there that's going to allow some better flow rates into the aircraft. Um, because it's, whereas the coupler is a set position and you're not going to have that same closing down as you, your pressure increases necessarily. Richard, I mean, thoughts kick in. I don't want to be the one running this conversation over here, but it's, it's something obviously I'm passionate about in pressure control. Yeah, in actual fact, Tom, I think you're in a really good position to, to speak about this in detail. Uh, what Tom does is manufactures this equipment. He's a part of the, 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 the design of the equipment. He stands in our test rig and he watches the equipment in test, and then he also understands fully what A4A and also what JIG require of us. So that's why he's such a, a good person to discuss this topic and to speak about it so passionately and in such an informed manner. Um, so I don't disagree with you, Tom. The, the nice thing, and you, you mentioned it earlier, that one of your 10 airports will do it almost right. I'm guessing that's because that one airport had a European working there. So I did, <laughs> I did, I did hear that. Um, and I guess the others were all wow. US-based. But <laughs> what the really nice thing, and not to debate the, the where's and wherefores about how we do it, but the nice thing from my perspective is because we have such a, a transparent procedure for pressure control, we can be in London, we can be in Geneva, we could be in Dubai, or we could be in Mumbai. It makes no difference. We are all talking about the same thing and talking the same language and we're all training the same way. And that is what's so good about the way we do it. We do dial into it very, very deeply. Um, I think that the procedure we have is pretty good, although even listening to Tom there, I'm learning some things and understanding what he's saying, but it's the repeatability and the transparency of what we do and how we do it, I think, which really works so well for us over here. For sure, I, I think the fact that y'all lay it out and every operation you go into is gonna do it the same way because it's spelled out. That consistency uh, across operations and within operations is what's important. I mean, quite literally, you could go into some operations around the US and talk to different techs on the same airport that are testing the same thing, but they're testing it differently. 
And then, you know, something to look at further is, is the test stand even set up at those airports, if they have a test stand, to do the test in that manner? So yeah, accommodations have to be made, and I understand that, and that has there has to be some consideration to that. But there's definitely a lot for the U.S. to consider in how we move forward. So then, Tom, do you think, in listening to what you're saying, do you think that the U.S. needs to bring itself to the same standard that says as Europeans, or do we need a further standard which is overarching, which we all meet, and even improve what we're doing here? I think we can get to a point where we start over-standardizing things. Uh, you know, I used to crack a joke all the time that you get into some of these vehicles built to a global specification and they interlock your underwear to the seat. You know, it's it, it's interlock everything and mitigating as much of the risk as possible, preventing the fuelers from doing anything wrong. And okay, there's some good things to that and there's some bad things to that. And that might be a whole conversation in and of itself. I think that you don't want to overstand it. I think we can learn from each other, Richard. Uh, and like I said, I, I think that we can relax some things in JIG. We could relax and say, okay, we don't need to tell them what's primary and secondary. We just need to tell them they have a primary and secondary. In the U.S., we can, we can get a little bit more granular and say, okay, you need to maybe stay under this pressure. You can do it with a primary and you need to do it with a primary and secondary here's how you test these two different devices. And at least then you start getting some consistency in what you're seeing testing-wise and the repeatability and performance of the hose and pressure controller or the coupler. If you're not testing it right, you might not be understanding exactly if it's controlling the pressure as it's supposed to be or shutting off as it's supposed to be. It's a slight issue, slight side issue, but something that occurs to me, um, there's we'll talk maybe a bit about vehicle design in one of the upcoming podcasts but you know there are only so many vehicle manufacturers around the world and what we do see for example in the middle east more so than other parts of of our territory here is a lot of american built fueling trucks being used in that geography and one of the kind of complications of that is that when that truck comes over and it's being used in a location like that, suddenly you'll find the componentry on that truck, because it's a US design, if you like, is different than they might ordinarily use. And therefore, when you try to apply, as you're talking about now, um, the protocol for pressure control testing, suddenly now you don't have the same components on the vehicle to test. So it's a really unusual one. You know, we have a case right now where we've got a vehicle where upon you can't test it at all to jig, yet it's being used in a jig location because the vehicle is built in the USA. So it's a, it's a funny side issue, but it's kind of springs from what you're talking about, having these two separate standards and the world isn't such a big place anymore. And uh, we are starting to see this. No, yeah, it's definitely some differences in the in the builds, and we have a whole podcast. We'll we'll talk about that. I think the almighty dollar drives some of those design standards a truck built to a global standard such as jig versus a truck built to a4a spec 103 because of the requirement differences or even what an oil company or operating company might have as their own specifications on top of that really drives up cost and so you see people being cheap for lack of better terms is it safe yes i i, I don't want anybody to think because the same dollars aren't being spent, it's less safe. It's just as safe. It's just a view of letting the operators have a little bit more say in what they're doing. 
uh, versus telling them everything they have to do. There's critical things that need to be done. And I think everybody addresses, for the most part, those critical items. And it's, it's a good segue, Richard, to go into, yeah, there, there are variances on both sides in equipment. I mean, let, let's talk about it. You mentioned it on a vehicle, but let's talk about it in an airport. EI-1584, fourth edition. Um, and maybe we start with third edition. Um, this is the Energy Institute's standard for hydrant pit valves and hydrant pressure control couplers or hydrant couplers. And they went from second edition to third edition in what? They wrote it in 08 or 09. And jig operators adopted it and had to be in compliance with both pit valves and couplers by the end of 2010. And in the US, in the 2019 edition of Spec 103, it was asked that then it was it was put in then with a five-year compliance to get to third slash fourth edition. So, I mean, yeah, we, we have differences and that's not the only one. Yeah. And to, to broaden that conversation just a little bit more for anybody who's, of course, listening, the essence of that of that standard 1584 fourth edition is that we have a coupler that freely breaks breaks away from a hydrant valve in the event that it happens to be struck by an external force and the braking force is four to five thousand pounds um so the idea being that if the coupler is struck by a tug a catering vehicle or whatever it may be the coupler will come off the valve will close and close cleanly and prevent a geyser of fuel spraying into the air is that a geyser or a geyser? Geyser, geyser, <laughs> tomato, tomato. It's, it's <laughs> Another key difference uh, on both sides. <laughs> okay, so spraying a geyser of fuel into the air. And that's, that's the essence of what the standard is trying to achieve. You're right, we adopted that fully in 2010, 2011, I think. And here we are 10 years down the line and we are all um operating to that pretty much um yet as you rightly say the timelines in the us are very very different uh, that's an interesting one to me because how we can adopt something 10 years ago and yet you are still what how many years away from perhaps fully adopting it i'm not quite sure how that works yeah we're, we're a year and a half away from endoplane operators and system operators have to be in compliance both on pit valves and couplers and and i would say a large majority are probably already there, at least on the pit valves. Um, couplers, there's been a lot of progress made. I think the biggest difference in that adoption, Richard, is in Europe, which let's call that the heart of EI and the heart of JIG, a lot of your guys that are creating those standards sit on both technical committees, both the JIG committee and the EI technical committee. So it behooves them to say, hey, if we're going to do this and we're going to write this standard, we need to adopt this standard. Whereas in the US, A4A technical committee, which its members sit on, which those members are airlines and people from those airline fuel groups are sitting on and voting on and driving that standard. Again, I won't, they have their own reasons for choosing what to adopt or not to adopt and they're, and they're looking at the whole picture and that's up to them. Uh, we try to give them the best guidance from the field we can, and they can take that input or not. Uh, but I think that's a big difference of the adoption. It's not that we don't want to do it. It's just that we don't have the same driving force that JIG might have in that adoption. 
I don't want to maybe take us back to, to last episode's discussion too, too much, but but do you see any of this kind of uh, relating to what we talked about last time, Tom, where the U.S.'s workforce is much more transient, whereas this is more of a career on the European side? Does that does that play into this this conversation at all, just in, in, in differences here? Maybe slightly, but that's actually where you would think the roles would be reversed. That's a good point. That, that the U.S. would be trying to protect everything from the operator messing it up and doing something stupid. And the European markets or the jig marketplace, the global marketplace, they would maybe be a little bit more relaxed because they do have career guys that have been doing it forever. Now, we need someone in the industry. We need a group of people. And there is, there's a very um, strong group of people working together to make sure we're always operating in a safe manner. And again, you heard me say in the last one, the the person's safety and the aircraft safety, uh, putting clean, dry fuel on the aircraft, it's those two are the most important tasks that we do on a daily basis um, on all sides of the globe. And we all get there. We just get there in different manners. But yeah, I, I definitely think that those cultures and the difference, you know, plays a big part. I, back in my operation days, it was it was interesting, and I always found it funny back then. Um, and not that it's funny, but it's an interesting interesting take. Is in the international groups, they would report near misses or near hits, and try to learn from those. So a, a ladder could have rolled away from an aircraft, and nothing happened. Didn't hit anything. Didn't do anything. And that's a reportable incident over there. In the U.S., it's not an incident until it hits something. Mm. And so it might not get reported. And I think that just kind of goes to a culture issue of safety um, and how they approach it. I don't know. Do, do y'all do y'all grow up that way, Richard? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, we certainly, we certainly are that way inclined. Uh, you're right, Tom. You can go in any of the workshops here and you'll see from the major oil, major oil companies bulletins, safety bulletins, reporting, misses, near misses, um, so that we can learn from these things. I remember distinctly being in a shop some years ago now, but nevertheless, there was a safety bulletin to say that one of the the employees of that particular oil company had actually tried to, hopefully this translates okay, but tried to boil an egg in a microwave. Now, I've never done that myself, but apparently it explodes if you read the bu- bulletin correctly. <laughs> so we had a bulletin which said to all of the guys in the shop, don't boil an egg on your break time in the microwave because, of course, it can cause harm to you. So, you know, we, we do really go into that in degree. But as we said before, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's the belts and suspenders, you know, in the U.S., just the belt to hold your pants up. In Europe, you got to have those suspenders to help keep them up a little bit. Yeah, let's not start the pants trousers discussion because that means something <laughs> very different over here, by the way. <laughs> All right, then we'll, we'll leave it at that that point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, I, I mean, here's here's another one for you, Richard. This is actually probably closer to you and, it, and it's affecting you all right now. So not only did we have a change from second to third edition and most recently fourth edition and and most of the listeners on this know that third edition is anybody that has qualified to third edition meets fourth edition um so the compliance is there already if they have third edition product but one of the new things coming out on the pit valves is jig what last year or 18 months ago put out a bulletin and y'all are having to move from anywhere there's manual pilots so this is just a on-off manual actuation of the hydrant pit valve to a dual lanyard, which is an air-operated pilot, 
so the dead man from the vehicle is controlling that but you also have a manual shut off to that or a manual override an emergency shut off uh is what it's actually called an emergency air override where it'll you pull that lanyard if for some reason your dead man didn't activate and it can shut the pit valve down whereas in the u.s we've just got a good old air pilot and we rely on our dead man to to run that function we don't very few airports have the dual pilots it's, it's a similar story to the 1584 fourth edition breakaway discussion that we just had and you're right tom historically you know a hydrant pit valve has got let's call it an on off switch on the side which is called a pilot so you pull the pilot or you activate the pilot to make the valve live and then of course you deactivate the pilot to close the valve at the end of the fueling historically we've had manual pilots um, one of the problems there we spoke about a geyser i think i said that right earlier um, should there be some kind of incident underwing and fuel flying and squirting into the air. So uh, one of the downfalls of having a manual pilot is if you have a geyser of fuel, you've actually got to run towards the pit area and towards the fuel to pull the lanyard to close the valve. And when you think about that, that's the wrong thing to be doing, running into the danger area to close the valve. So 1584, and also now endorsed by JIG in JIG2 is the use in all new airport locations in our part of the world to use a dual air and manual lanyard operated pilot. So as Tom said, that's a, still a manual pilot that you can pull in the event of a failure, but otherwise it works ordinarily from the use of an air operated dead man system. So now you can stand a long way back from the pit and you can open and close the pit with a dead man rather than being next to the pit to open and close it. Now, in the event that your air system or your dead man system doesn't work correctly, perhaps the air it fails to exhaust or there's a restriction to the air exhausting due to the collision around the pit area, you still then have a manual lanyard to pull the pilot closed and to close the pit off. So it's, again, um, belt and braces, as you said before, Tom. So we now have migrated to Every new airport location and every new hydrant system has this dual air operated pilot and it's preferred and it's advised as a retrofit to all other hydranted systems um, where possible. So you guys, as you rightly said, use just an air operated pilot. So this is exactly the same as the previous conversation whereupon you have an air operated pilot which works solely from the dead man. But what if then that dead man system doesn't work? What if the air can't exhaust? And what if there is a restriction to the dead man system? Because, for example, a hydrant cart or a tug or a catering vehicle is parked on the air supply line and the valve can't close itself. So we've moved to this and we've done it for many years now. Um, and it's a much safer practice. Yet again, you guys, I think, still have to fully adopt it. So it goes back to exactly what you said before in the terms of a very different idea of how things work, but because we've got slightly two different operating policymakers driving the way we do things on either side of the water. There's still some locations even within the the heartland of of Europe, um, Central Europe, somewhere in there. You know, they're not they have yet to move to the dual pilot. And I know that's something Jig's still working on uh, through. Mm -hmm. I know they've put bulletins out there and stuff, but you don't always get that compliance immediately. You know, so again what's right what's wrong sometimes can be debated is it safe is the operation safe 
that's, I think, the most important thing we have to get out of that. And, and just so I can clear this up, it, it seems like we're dragging on about this word, but a geezer is an old man. <laughs> <laughs> just, just so we can get that clear. And a geyser is a column of, we'll call it fluid, because we've seen it as, uh, as jet fuel, not just water. <laughs> so just so we can get that clear for everybody, especially Richard over there. I'm, I'm not going to argue. Again, I did say at the start, I'm learning things on this call. And yet again, I'm educated. Thank you. <laughs> and it can actually be considered derogatory, depending on how you're using it. It's, tr it's true. If you were to say, uh, yeah, uh, hey, look, there's Tyler. Look at that old geezer, you know, then... Uh, then yeah, that's uh, it could be taken as derogatory. So so yeah yeah. Um, well, guys, any kind of uh, final thoughts or, or anything else we want to talk about uh, just around these differences that we've talked about here today um, in pressure control and things of that nature? I I think for me, and if I can get anything out there, and if anybody's listening, you know, it's it's get into a standard practice, and this is to U.S. operators, get into a standard practice work with the airlines to push for a standard or an appendix of how to do this so we can get consistency in the marketplace. Um, we only get better when we work together and we learn from each other. We can take things from our European counterparts just as they can take some things from us and we move together and let's call it harmonization. Uh, we move in more of a harmonized manner and we become better at what we're doing. Yeah, and I actually completely agree with you, Tom. And and to flip it another way, you know, it seems sometimes we're we're on the opposite side of the coin. Where now Tyler and we've discussed this quite a lot between ourselves now over a few podcasts. You can start to see how we still have strangely a legacy of these kind of two divided markets, effectively in terms of our practices and how we do things. And then to bring that back to us, we also discussed in the last podcast that we have almost two different products, one which is good for one part of the world, one which is correct for another part of the world. And then again, to bring that back a stage further to us, that means we've got operational challenges which differ world over. It means we have different stocking plans to bring it back to a basic level in terms of what we hold and where and, and how many. And also in terms of, you know, different types of user training and how do we tailor a user training package when, again, standards are different and operational practices might be different world over. So this kind of, this difference that we have and that we see actually to bring it back to an OEM level, a Clavar level now, as you can see now, is complicated for us to be able to try to coerce people and move people in the same direction. So, Tom, I'm with you, completely agree. And um, that's what we can get to the utopia you mentioned. On top, on top of that, just what you said, Richard, it, it's for everybody to know, and it's something we push really hard here in the education piece, is when we do that flow testing, everything we build, our nozzles with hose and pressure controllers, our inline valves, our couplers, all of those are flow tested and pressure tested. And what does that mean and what does that look like? Well, we actually test these to the stricter of the standards, and that's to a jig standard. Um, so we do a two-second shutoff to understand surge. We do a 30-second closure to understand that pressure control, just like you would see in JIG. We know that if we pass the stricter standard, it would be good for both markets. So it's something to share with the party out there. We don't change how we build our product as far as a function standpoint for one market or the other. The differences we get into the marketplaces on that, uh, I mean, we're, we're facing it in France, is a difference in handles used. 
you know, one country might like a certain kind of handle over another. But I, I, I really wanted to share that everything we do is is got a full pressure test, full flow test to the pr- to the values they're going to see in the field, and we go to the stricter standards when we're doing that. Well, Tom, like you mentioned uh, earlier in the in the podcast, um, the the world is uh, a smaller place these days, right? And it requires more collaboration, communication, and um, and maybe compromise in certain places. Just as we all learn how to work better together, and I think that this podcast has done a good job of just outlining some of the differences, the positives, and the negatives of those, and uh, and how things can continue to move forward um, as again the world continues to shrink. So, Tom Boriak and Richard Hooten, guys, thank you once again for joining me here on the podcast today. Thank you, Tyler. Awesome, Tyler. Appreciate it. And everyone, thank you for tuning into this episode of the Valve Chronicles. Remember, this is the third episode in a series looking at the differences in aircraft fueling operations between the U.S. and Europe. So make sure to go back and check out those previous two episodes with Tom and Richard as we get into uh, more of the differences. You'll hear on the first episode, uh, kind of just a general outline of what this podcast series is going to cover. Second episode looked at uh, at some of the cultural differences and how that manifests itself. And so uh, lots and lots of good stuff here from these two guys. And we will be back soon with more episodes of the Valve Chronicles from Clay Valve. But until then, I've been your host today, Tyler Kern. Thanks for listening.